superhuman awareness of how full your stomach is. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's one of your senses. It's one of your senses. <laughs> As is fashion every so often, uh, artifacts of fashion here, uh, we spent the last 20 minutes trying to get, trying to resolve tech issues. Uh, and we had a whole bit recorded about like men's fashion and there was a bit shoe of- Shoehorns. Shoehorns. There was some really good shoehorn based material and I'm not even, I'm not even like joking. <laughs> there really was. Uh, but we've decided for the sake of time and file size that we just scratch all this and we're starting again and hopefully- the somewhat precarious recording situation we're in now will hold for the yeah. duration of this podcast. Hopefully. Um, hopefully. So do you want to just get straight into it, Bill? Let's get straight into it. All right. Point number one. Do you remember I was listening to Hamilton last episode? I do. Um, and as I uh, am want to do sometimes, I will uh, listen intensely to a thing or consume, not necessarily just music, but anything. I will consume a thing intensely and religiously for a period. And then mm-hmm. something will happen in my brain where it just goes enough. That's it. No, you've, you've done enough. There's no need to listen anymore. And I hit so you're that, a binge watcher and stuff like that. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then gotcha. I, I hit a certain point and then I'm like, I have no interest in this anymore. And that happened with Hamilton. That's not to say... I think it's terrible or anything. It's just that I think I've overloaded my circuit, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I overloaded with Hamilton. Then I was like, I need to find something else to religiously consume. And I was like, hmm, I am a completionist. What would be a really good completionist task in the realms of music? So I decided to go and listen to the entire works of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Starting... <laughs> Starting at, uh, is it KV? I think his, his index number is like KV uh, or K. Yeah. Is it KV or K? I can't remember. Uh, it's K. So his, his clarinet concerto was K622. Uh, annoyingly, Scarletti is also just a K for his cataloging system, which I don't know, that's going to cause problems at some stage, I'm sure. Mm, yeah, that's, that's not great now. But anyhow, I decided to go back to K1 and work my mm-hmm. way up. Uh, there's a bit of confusion with the indexing system uh, in terms of like what things are counted and what things aren't, but I just decided to go with a generic thing you find on Wikipedia and listen all the way through. Uh, I have made it not very far uh, <laughs> uh, because I'm actually trying to, I'm actually trying to like read scores at the same time as well, like actually sit there and and read the score whilst listening and try and understand a little bit. Um, yeah. So it's 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 a long process. Anyhow, I bring all this up to say that whilst I was listening, I kind of got like into learning more about Mozart as a dude. Um, so I watched a BBC documentary on Mozart. I will link it if I can find the link. Uh, BBC do great music documentaries. Yeah, it was a very good... And it was shot like... Um, it was shot kind of like a, a contemporary thing where they had like interviews with actors pretending to be, you know, Mozart's dad and things like that. It was kind of an interesting, oh, interesting. That's weird. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a unique take on the thing. It was very good. Um, anyhow, so uh, it turns out I found out through this documentary that Mozart, uh, aside from being a child prodigy, uh, a wonderful musician and a great composer, uh, was also a very keen world builder, which kind of, Blew my huh. mind. Yeah. Um, How so? So it, it turned out that on his like cross Europe travels when he was a kid, when he was building up his early career, um, he would ask the carriage driver to like draw him maps of the areas they were in, um, unannotated maps. Maps. 
and he would like annotate them with like fictional place names and things like that. So he would do his own bit of map building while he was bored and sitting in the carriage, which I think is class. It's really fun. It's really cute. It's very, very cute. And of all the things to hear in a documentary about Mozart, I did not expect world building to yeah. come up, but it was cool. Um, that's that's fun because I think I mentioned on a previous episode that my chief dude Ligeti was was a keen world builder as well. Oh, did you? I know you brought I up Ligeti before, but Ligeti as a world builder. Yeah, there, there's two elements to this. He um. He did a similar thing as as a kid that a, a lot of kids do. He he invented a fictional country and came up with its laws and its customs, and he tried to make this sort of utopia. Um, and I think those papers are still extant somewhere in in one of the archives. And he also was a sort of a world builder of his music, particularly in his his third period, his late period. He described the sound of his later music as being as though there was a fusion of uh, sub-Saharan African music with uh, Southeast European music situated somewhere in the Caribbean. There, there's some, there's some uh, quote like that. I can't remember it exactly. Huh. I'll, uh, I'll, dig it, I'll dig it out from my thesis and, and <laughs> send it to you or post it on the, on the sub or something. Oh, dig, dig, um, dig it out from your thesis. Yeah, because oh, I wrote about him for my thesis oh, in, in college. Oh, and that, that was one of the things that I referred to, that, that late period and the, the inspirations behind his various music. Um, so he was like creating this sort of imagined culture. And these were the influences that created that imagined culture. Hmm. Now, I realize this is probably going to go overheads of most non-classical musical listeners here. But uh, do you want to tell me, do you want to give me some prominent works from his third period so I can kind of get this in my head? Uh, the piano concerto would be a good one. Uh, That's I think that would probably be the main one I'd I'd recommend to to hear the the rhythmic stuff that he's talking about, uh, and his piano studies. Are are his studies the ones where it starts off with one note and then two notes? No, that's the Musica Ritzarkata. That's from uh. the fifties. Okay. Um, he he does some similar stuff in some of his studies, like exploring kind of quite limited. Uh, uh, intervals and, and stuff, I think. I think there's one that's based all around is, is, fifths or something. I'm not is, sure. Is Poem Symphonique um, in his late period? No, that's mm. from the 60s. That's mm. his... Uh, he was experimenting with Fluxus. Okay, so maybe I just don't know much of his late period then. Uh, because, I yeah, what I'm, the works I'm familiar with is Musica Ricata. Um, is, is Ligeti the Devil's Staircase? Yeah, that's one of the studies. That's the oh, okay. 13th study. Okay, cool. So the Devil's Staircase yeah. is an example of something in his late period. Cool. Good. At least yeah. at least now I have some reference in my head. I, I apologize to anyone who, who's not a fan of Diggity. <laughs> uh, I realized that, that that whole thing made no sense, but I just needed to get that uh, ballpark in my head. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that's that's something um, that once you bring that up, I've, I've kept suggesting and threatening that I, I, I do a bit about lesser known or unexpected world builders. Um... And Ligeti was one person who, who I had in mind to talk about. Maybe that's something that viewers would be interested in, in hearing. I don't know. Oh, here, also, I'd be interested in, in, in like, listeners telling us if they know anyone. Uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'd imagine there'd be fair freedom. Sure, Plato constitutes as one, doesn't he? In the Republic? Yeah, we brought him up as Perhaps, well. Perhaps, yeah. Um, 
So I'm I'm sure there's got to be there's got to be loads of them. Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Let us know. Let us know. Bill, do your research on this and come back to us. And then listeners, <laughs> listeners, let us know. It would be very interesting to uh, to find out. All right. Uh, shall we head into emails? Let's head into the mail room. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's call it by its correct title, Bill. Title, Bill. Yeah. Well, if you'd written that in the show notes, maybe oh, I would have. God. Yeah, okay, I'm editing now. <laughs> <laughs> Mail room. Uh, let's head in. This actually follows on really nicely because the first email we have here is from Spencer O'Dowd. Mm-hmm. And it is an email uh, basically saying that they're, that uh, Spencer's first uh, foray into serious world building was via Chris Wyan's Planetocopia. Um, and uh, he, w- he would like to know uh, what our thoughts are on this. My thoughts on Planet Copia specifically is I don't know what this is. I'll pass it <laughs> up to you in, uh, in a second, Bill. But I think an interesting point, a, a meta point around this email is to talk about like the genesis of where world building came from for us. Like what was our first uh, like steps into world building? So first off, Bill, tell me about Planet Cornucopia and then tell me about your, your, your uh, world building beginnings. Uh, so I have come across Planetcopia, I've come across it a couple times and forgotten it a few times and then come across it again, uh, but I've got it bookmarked now. It's it's a really interesting site. Uh, essentially, this guy has made a load of different planets and it's it's really kind of in-depth geo-building. The most interesting ones for me are the ones based around Earth, where he's done different things with Earth, like... Uh, changing the where the poles are to see what effect that would have um there's one called geradia which is inspired by guns germs and steel and it's to to give the the largest possible continuous land uh, running east to west uh like by by just taking the world as it is and putting it in a different uh orientation uh, hmm. that's, it's, it's really good. And he, like, he goes into such depth that it's not just, we're going to put it this way and keep the, the shorelines the same. He actually calculates if it was like this and there was a huge landmass at one of the poles, how much bigger would the ice cap be? What would that do to sea levels? What would that do to the atmosphere, etc. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very good geo building from that point of view. Um, and those are the ones like, you know, if you reversed the, land and sea what would that be like or if you just kind of just th- th- things like that things like that kind of just cool. like, like taking the earth as as a beginning point and then changing it in some way and then there's other ones with a a terraformed mars a terraformed venus then various like planets or moons rather various moons that have been made to be uh, habitable somehow cool that's really cool that sounds mm-hmm. very interesting yeah it's worth a look uh, i will uh, warn though that elsewhere on the site that Planetopia is hosted on, there's furry erotica and stuff that may not be entirely safe for work. So, you know, don't go outside the Planetopia stuff, and I think you'll mostly be fine. Uh, okay. um, so, uh, what just tread precaution. Yeah, just uh, a general a general uh, notice about content elsewhere on on the the website. Cool. All right. Well, sure. We'll link anyways. I might put a not safe for work tag on it just to make absolutely sure um, mm-hmm. that people know what, what they're getting in for. Um, 
that sounds really interesting. I might go check it out. Uh, now, your first foray into world building, Bill. How did this start? I have a vague idea that we talked about this before. I think we wrote this in your bio, but I don't think we talked about it. Do you remember hmm. me talking about, about Pizza Hut? Yes. Ah, sh- and pirates. Okay. I guess we guess we did talk about it. <laughs> damn it! Damn it! Okay, right. Well, we'll no- link in the show notes to that episode. <laughs> oh, no, I, we absolutely will not. I'm I'm not going back to our entire back catalog and listening to everything to try and find that one discussion. I I, I didn't just read I, the show notes. There's only I don't remember. Th- I don't remember doing this at all. Okay, just really quickly, if we have any new listeners say who haven't listened to the back catalog, uh, my <laughs> my first foray into world building was Pizza Hut. Uh, I went with my family to a pizza hut in London and as part of the meal, we got like this cardboard cutout, uh, like pizza hut branded pirate adventure sort of thing. Uh, and I came up with a whole bunch of stories for these pirates and... Uh, Traditional Italian pirates. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. <laughs> and I came up with a whole bunch of stories for them and like the, the ship was like a flying ship as well. So they went on these mad sky pirate adventures and all this sort of jazz. Uh, and that's where that started. And then it lay dormant for like many, 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 many years until I discovered uh, the, the world building book. I keep plugging on the channel, um, a writer's guide to constructing uh, fictional star systems. And then I was kind of like, oh, this isn't all just uh, kind of make up stories. Like there, there's a bit of science to it as well. And that really kind of like, uh, caught my imagination like to be like I can use maths to try and construct something and I can say to someone this is actually plausible as opposed to like flying space pirates and things like that not that there's anything wrong with that like there's some great movies that involve flying space pirates but just the <laughs> the, the rigor the rigor of it really struck me and from then on I was completely hooked um, and then the whole like the YouTube channel came out of the fact that I couldn't progress because of that rigor so i don't know if you remember this bill but remember when we lived together in college yeah i had spent an inordinate amount of time constructing a uh, planet system and i wanted to get it as realistic as possible and i had hung uh, like uh, what's called paper on the walls and i had made charts and things like that and i couldn't move on because i was always saying to myself yeah but i can get this more realistic um, and I could use more science in this and I wasn't moving. So the whole channel came out of me going, if I make videos for the public to consume and people watch it, I will be sort of forced to move on to a new topic. Like no one's going to want to listen to like hundreds of videos about like planetary alignment. They're going to want other stuff. So Artifexian was purely born out of a need for me to get out of my own headspace. Uh, which is interesting. So that's that is my world building journey in in a not so not so brief summary. Do you want to quickly summarize your position again for any new listeners? Um, I always liked the maps in books when I was a kid. Uh, growing up, I read um, Narnia and The Hobbit and stuff like that, and I always really enjoyed the maps. And I remember, my I was too young to read the Discworld, but my uh, Older siblings had the, were really into them, and they got, bought the Atlas of the Discord, which is a big fold-out map. And I was really fascinated by that, so I just I started drawing maps. And we had a how to make fantasy art book, and one of the chapters in it was on making maps. And from that, I kind of started drawing my own ones and populating the 
countries and coming up with like different countries based on different things I'd seen and in fantasy and stuff. And so I started doing it that way, but I was always interested in, you know, things being realistic and things being accurate. So that made me take an interest in, you know, how accurate can I make it? Like, why would I put the, like a desert here rather than a forest? That kind of thing. And I think, I think there was a line in the, the book that came with the Atlas of Discworld where Terry Pratchett talked about uh, speaking to uh, geographers and, and people about making it realistic. And that really kind of seemed really interesting to me. So from that, I started wanting to make things more rigorous. And that's how I got into it. That's really cool. That's, I, I mm-hmm. always love people's uh, starting stories. They're really, they're really interesting. Um, do you... How did people around you respond to this new hobby that you've discovered? I don't really remember. It was just like, hey, look, dad, I drew a map. And he was like, oh, cool, great map. <laughs> uh, for, like, for listeners, Bill's dad is an epic man. Actually, Bill's, <laughs> Bill's parents are just the loveliest parents. I, I, I adore Bill's parents so, so much. Every time I hear a mention of, oh, I won't mention real names, but every time I hear a mention of Bill's parents, it always fills my heart with great joy. I love it. <laughs> they're, they're pretty cool. <laughs> um, the I, I find, and I still get this to this day, that it's always treated with a sense of like, are you a little bit crazy? Um, every time I tell anyone about what I do, um, they're always kind of like, that's extremely weird. I've never heard of that. What's wrong with you? Would you not just go out and play sport? Uh, and things mm. like that. Um, which is, and it's crazy that like, this is like the, the word world building seems to not have like seeped into the, the like collective mind, mm. even though like, we as a society love going to uh, like movies and reading books and things like that, that are heavy on the world building and world building is not just a term that we have made up. Like, you know, if you read like a review of a movie, they might say something like, Oh, the world building was a bit, you know, heavy handed or whatever. Like it is a word that is used, but yeah, people don't really know it. And then when you tell them about this hobby, they're like, that's really weird. Um, and to, to such a point where I've stopped telling people that I do world building, like it just, I, I, that's not my job anymore. Uh, like if people ask me what I do, I tell them I work for Google in the media department because I'm, I don't really want to go through, uh, the whole shtick of being like, oh, I actually, I spend a lot of time on my own, uh, thinking about how uh, a planet works and, uh, constructing a fictional planet. And they're like, uh, for what? Uh, for like a thought experiment, um, because for it's... my for my own intellectual edification, right? Okay, but that only flies with people who like that sort of thing, and everyone else is <laughs> kind of like that's really weird. And so yeah, I've just I I've stopped telling people like it's it's the, we had builders in here as well. And they were like, what do you do? And I I I I tried a little bit to tell them about world building. You can just see the, their eyes glaze over, and they're just like, what what's wrong with you? <laughs> so uh, today. Funnily enough, just when you're talking about your your uh, your journey into world building and starting the YouTube channel, was Evolution of Low Mass Stars your first video? Uh, y- yes, yes, yes. That was published four years and one day ago. Oh man, tell me about it. I see those. I see those things sometimes, and I'm like, I've been doing this for quite a long time. Yeah, which is which is twenty fifth of February, twenty fourteen. So four years and one day before the date of recording here. Isn't that mad? It's a, it's my four year anniversary. 
Woo! Yeah. <laughs> that is, it is crazy. It's been going on that long. Uh, I just need to apologize to everyone that it's that it, it goes on this long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I thought that this would be. I was actually worried at the start of Artifacts in being like, I'm going to run out of material very, very quickly. Um, and then, and then, nope. as, yeah. And then, as you build, you suddenly like every question you ask, like you know, how do I construct a planet? And then you you figure it out, and then you realize that opens up a whole can of worms with regards to everything else. And then suddenly you're like, oh, you can also like, you know, there's different construction methods for different planets and that we're into moons. And then, and it just keeps going on uh, and on, which is great. Like, that's not a complaint at all. Um, in fact, it's a good thing because it'd be worse if I just had to one day be like, uh, I have no more content for everyone. Bye-bye. I'm going to leave the internet now. Um, no, mm-hmm. That would be no good. Anyway, uh, in in the Reddit and an email, uh, let us know about your world-building genesis. I would like to hear some stories. If... Um, if you've already sent it in, resend because I clearly don't remember the past very well. Um, and I'd like to read these things again. Cool. Cool. All right. Uh, shall we crack on to the next email? Yes. Uh, so the next email we're going to talk about is from Ira Yake. It who, is. Uh, um, if I remember correctly, wrote a very, very nice review of our podcast uh, about a year ago, maybe, maybe a year and a half. Yeah, and also has a uh, a podcast himself. Oh yes, yeah. So uh, we'll link we'll link to these things in in the show notes. You can, you can go check it out for sure. And uh, he's written a short story set on in Takar, set in your setting, which I, I really enjoyed. I very much enjoyed the short story. It was really good. I will link it in the yeah. show notes for people to read. I'm not going to read it here because it's, it's too long to do that. Um, yeah, there's there's a couple of points I'd like to bring up that I think uh, two points that I think are uh, interesting comments on the story, and then mm-hmm. one again one meta point uh, which I think is interesting overall. Um, I like Ira's use of the word button ups to describe like the government. I think that's a really cool bit of lingo that I'm going to adopt. Like the button ups are here again. I think that's really awesome. Um, and he's also Ira's adapted the. Um, the magic system somewhat, my admittedly very vague magic system, into, like, Wolverine-esque mechanics, where, like, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, where, like, bones grow and protrude uh, mm-hmm. from the person, which is an interesting twist in the idea. I wouldn't have gone there myself, but I actually quite like it. Like, it works out really well. Um, so I would encourage people to go read it and see what they think, uh, and then, you know, contrast that with what I'd said in the podcast. It's, it's, it's an interesting read. The, mm-hmm. the meta point though, I want to bring up, and this is going to come across as a slight criticism, but it's really not that bad in, in your writing, Ira. Like it's not like your writing is so much better than what I can do, but it's just something that I noticed and I just like to talk about. Um, people who write sci-fi, uh, sometimes I feel like they over describe and this 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 goes for real like published big hitting authors they over describe elements that don't need to be described and there's a couple of examples in Ira's writing but they're very again very very small and it's just a thing that I'm like I just want to bring up and make people aware of it's something that I don't particularly like in sci-fi writing like a good example would be Bill if um if I were to like write a story and in the story is set in, in real world, like a piece of nonfiction. Um, and mm-hmm. in the story, I had to go to the ATM and take out 50 euro. Like yeah. a, a, a nonfiction writer would be like, you know, Edgar stopped at the ATM, took out 50 euro, went to the shop and bought 10 cakes. Like 
that's all that we require. But I feel like sometimes sci-fi authors, they will be like, you know, Edgar walked up to the automatic teller machine, uh, deposited his government-issued uh, digitally encrypted card into the interface of the machine, uh, the interface of the machine, and then they'll queue a long description yeah. about the technical process behind it. And then, punched in his personal identification number. Right, and so again, I, I just I don't want this to come across as a criticism, Ira, because it really isn't. There was like maybe two sentences that I felt got a little bit explainy, but like it happens sometimes in sci-fi, and I get why people do it. Like they want to show the world building, but sometimes yeah. I feel like you shouldn't do that. Like agree, disagree. I I think it can break immersion. Yeah, yeah. For me, no, I I, I didn't I didn't particularly find that in in this short story. Um. But I, I, I'm familiar with the thing that you're talking about. If you over-describe what ought to be common actions within the context of the universe, then it makes it very clear that it is being, that it's a story that is being told to an outsider. Yeah. And, and that that breaks the immersion for me. Yeah, that's that's a really neat way of summarizing it. Exactly. Um, I, I, can I give can I give you two examples from uh, Ira's writing? Again, I'm really sorry, sorry. Ira. If 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 you hate this, we'll we'll <laughs> we'll cut this out and upload a new copy or whatever. But like, I, I genuinely don't want this to come across as me th- saying that your writing is terrible. It's like it absolutely is not, and it's really marginal, and it's purely like personal taste on my part. Um, but the, the two examples would be, there's one sentence here that goes, I was nearing the end of the ship, moving at almost 40 kilometers per hour. And like, that's, that's very, very, um, slight, but it's, it kind of does break immersion because it feels like the writer telling us that this, uh, X infused soldier is capable of superhuman speed and has to specifically write the speed. So we know this. Whereas I feel like if it were more of an in-universe thing where that was uh, commonplace, you would simply say something like, I was moving quickly towards the end of the ship. And we'd have to infer as readers that it was doing, uh, mm-hmm. being done by superhuman speed. Um, mm-hmm. See, th- that sort of thing. Now, again, it's really minor. And there's another one just below that. Um, and, and how does the, the narrator of that know the speed they are moving at? Right, exactly. Yeah, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between the action and how we're receiving it. Um, and that is, again, not a problem here hugely, but sometimes it can be really bad in some in some pieces mm-hmm. of writing. Uh, there's, there's another one here. Uh, a wave of pre- pressure flowed out of my hand and flew towards the side of the ship, sending an equal amount of force backwards towards me, causing my speed dash to slow dramatically. And that feels like a description of like Newtonian physics almost in a way. And it's like, I don't think that's entirely necessary. Do you know what I mean? And I'm a big advocate of like leaving all that out and just putting in like subtle hints that the reader has to be like, wait a minute are they doing something superhuman here? And like make them think about it as opposed to like telling us exactly how this system is being enforced because... Show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. And obviously as world builders, uh, we want to show all the stuff. Like we want to show all of our working out. Like this is why we have Andy Weir and the Martian. We we really want to do this, but I think we need to hold back and just not do this. Um, Mm -hmm. To take it away from Ira for a little bit, we talked a little bit before on, on a previous episode, but just, just it's relevant here. Uh, I think Mistborn, despite Mistborn, the Brandon Sanderson books being amazing, and I, I, I they're truly near and dear to my heart, uh, they do suffer from this a bit, where, where Brandon in a fight scene will say things like, um, I don't know, Joe 
burnt a little bit of pewter, uh, just enough to like move his right hand with like X amount of speed, and at the same time, uh, you know, he will he will talk through his magic system a bit too much as opposed to just describing yeah, it in real words. Yeah, describing it in real world setting and let us infer that it is magically infused, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Just, just a bit yeah. of, just a bit of metatric commentary there. Show don't tell. It's Bill with his summaries. It's so good. Essentially, all of that ramble <laughs> was just show don't tell, particularly in sci-fi settings. Uh, yeah, I guess that that sounds that all sounds fair. Um, I I really liked the the magic portrayed because I remember one of the things you said before about the magic is that it it just allows the body to do things that the body does, but more so. And I thought the idea of like, you know, actually growing bones to use, like growing bones in unusual ways, like to make a shield or to make a weapon. Uh, yeah, that kind of fits that bill because it's like you're just you're extending the, the physicality of your body in a way that your body doesn't naturally do. So I, I thought that was a cool way to build on, on the, the limitation you'd put on the on the magic. Definitely. And, um, and something I did not see myself as well. Like I've, I've spent a bit of time thinking over what the body could do. Um, and yeah. uh, I, I didn't get to flesh it out for this episode. Sorry. But I spent a lot of time thinking about the senses and how the sentence senses could be heightened. Um, yeah. Beyond the standard like five senses, like all the senses. Yeah. How they be heightened. But this, this bone idea I think is really good. How do you think the story fits in with the, the lore in general? Does it, does it fit well in in like the 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 interaction? Like you said, you like the addition of button ups as as a term. Um, you're not you you hadn't thought of the that particular magic thing, but you like it. Um, I think he gives a name to X. He does. Uh, com- compound Zanista Four. He does. Uh, I I actually like that name, but like given that I am the arbiter of the canon, it should really be Nacolite. Um, but other the other than that, I thought the additions were good. There was nothing in that I was kind of like, ah, oh, it's a bit lame. I wouldn't have done that. Um, yeah, I think it was fairly spot on. Um, cool. and it, much, 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 much better than my implementation of it in the Alcita, uh, where I talk about fireballs and things like that, which I kind of regret now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah, it's much better. Uh, so yeah, aside from the the naming, uh, I think it's good. It's good. Good to go. Cool. Let's move on to... Oh, and uh, th- Ira, thank you for writing. It, it it means a lot. It's really fun that people take uh, my ideas, my, you know, vague ideas and, and flesh them out. I think that's really cool. And it's 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 a yeah, cool absolutely. position to be in to have people write stuff about your ideas. Uh, it's it's awesome. So thank you so much for, for writing. And I, again, I'll leave it in show notes and people can go check it out. Uh, hit up Ira and uh, tell him what you think, you know, um, spread some love. Uh, yeah, let's mm-hmm. let's let's move on to the last email. What we got? Uh, we've got one here from Zen Ten. Cool. Hi, Zen Ten. Uh, regular uh, contributor and listener, mm-hmm. um, and they've sent in a link to the coat of arms of the new governor or the the current governor general of Canada, uh, Julie Payette. Okay, let me call this up. Let me call this up. Um, okay, cool. All right, what what, what yeah, do you got? Because we say talked about a bit about heraldry in, in in the last the last podcast. Okay. Uh, so what did you say? What what do you think about this coat of arms? Did you paint a visual picture here for me, Bill? Uh, I'll try. There's a lot to it. It has like it's a full it's a full coat of arms. There's there's <laughs> there's much in it. So 
we'll put the link in the show notes, but essentially there's uh, a shield. One half is, uh, the left half is blue, the right half is black. There is a white wing and crown on the shield. Uh, it's supported by two lynxes. There is a kind of a motto uh, in, a, in a circle around the shield. I can't make out what it says. It, it says somewhere in the in the description, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, atop the shield, there is a, a crest of an astronaut's helmet and then uh, a, a short uh, musical excerpt, like written music. Um, below the shield and the lynxes, there's a, kind of a blue semicircle two medals, the letter Sigma, and then a banner that reads Paraspera ad Astra. It looks really cool, this coat of arms. Yeah, I, re- I really like it. I really like the colours in it. Yeah. In, 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 or at least in this uh, um, this version of it that's, that's been portrayed here, the, the blues and blacks and greys. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's not what I could have imagined in heraldry, and it, it looks really cool. I mean, there's nice color matching going on. I mean, short of the red, if the red were orange, that is literally the color scheme of my house. Uh, really, my house <laughs> is blue, blue, white, gray, and orange. Um, so th- those colors are particularly that's, that's, pretty. That's still a fairly orangey red. It's still it, it's it it's red though. Like no one's. Oh, going, it is red. Yeah, but it's it's close to orange. It's yeah, it is close to orange. Uh, you know what? I often find when people put music notes on things, it it always mm-hmm. ends up as a bit of a train wreck, and you know they haven't really thought about it, and it doesn't actually make sense in terms of like musical yeah. notation. This actually makes sense. Like this is a mm-hmm. small tune, uh, in three four in D minor, which is correctly annotated. Like it's you could give that to a musician and they could play it. Um, yes. You know, I mean, like, I, I would argue that the beaming on the first beat is incorrect. Uh, they, I don't understand why it would be beamed upwards. It should be beamed downwards. Uh, but yes, it should be. It should be. But but aside mm-hmm. from that, it's really good. And it's even got a really complex mordant on, on the last note. A mordant, people, <laughs> is like a little little trill type thing on a note. Um, yeah. But that's like advanced musical notation right there. That's amazing to see. Uh, funnily enough... This has actually become a little bit of a meme in uh, music engraving circles on Facebook. Oh, well, this coat of arms? Yes. No way. Well, uh, uh, it's this is the origin of a meme. Um, I think it's... I, I don't know exactly what the issue was because I, I wasn't around for the initial discussion. Um, but I think it's to do with the the alignment and the beaming of the, the first quavers here that they're pointing up rather than down. Um and someone who kind of was sent an email to the to the governor general or someone in the general's office or whoever did this version of the of the coat of arms and said you know this this is incorrect it's it should be pointing the other way or whatever their other problems were and uh, the reply contained the line heraldry does sometimes uh, depart from precise depictions in this way and that's uh, evolved into a sort of a stock meme phrase in some of the music engraving groups on Facebook. Um, Class. But it's yeah, I mean it's 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 perfectly legible. It's it's certainly perfectly legible. I would argue the the B flat in the key signature is a little bit low. It should be a little bit higher. It uh, looks like it could be an A flat at first glance. And I would argue that the initial D is dangerously close to being an E. 
Oh yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a little bit, it's and a little bit off. If I, if I didn't know something about music theory and the fact that that should be a D because we're in D minor, I mm-hmm. might be inclined to perhaps play that as EFG that passage as opposed to DFG. Um, mm. Oh, do you know what I might even do in post? I might actually insert right here a little like MIDI recording of how that sounds, so people can actually uh, understand what it is we're talking about. <laughs> oh, just just put it in a recording of the music. Uh, yeah, but what is that music? It's uh, Alessandro Marcello's Oboe Concerto in D minor. Now, it <laughs> says here. In- really? Why is there an Oboe Concerto on the on the on the coat of arms? Um, <laughs> the first notes of the second movement of Alessandro Marcello's Oboe Concerto in D minor evoke Miss Payette's lifelong interest in singing and classical music, particularly from the Baroque period. And there's kind of a oh. classical music is such a, a an ambiguous term there that that's something we could talk about, but I I understand the the, the meaning. Yes. Um. Uh, that's not actually quite accurate. It's not the first notes of the second movement. It's the first notes of the theme in the second movement because there's a few bars of strings and that's the first notes that the oboe plays. Oh man! In, you know, in the in the second movement. Do you know what we're doing here? We're being like that nerd. We're being those nerds who just like nitpick at every little thing because we have some some modicum of expertise in the area. Like, Damn right I am. <laughs> oh no, your beaming is wrong. This is terrible. I will say just just to be really pedantic, and again, I'm really sorry, listeners. This is very inside baseball, and like. I, I I know there will be someone here uh, listening who doesn't uh, read music notation, and I'm really sorry, but I'm just going to go ahead and say this. Um, one could make a case for the awkward beaming, right? This is less so that I know it's an actual piece and not just some made-up thing, but one could argue that the initial uh, crotchet beat, right, is one voice, mm-hmm. and the remaining is a second voice. It's a two-voice thing. Ergo, why the beaming is... Uh, is kind of strange. Now, yes, that that is I suppose. that is not what's happening here. Obviously, obviously, what they did was not put the beams. But I can be and a, it be a very weird situation for that to to come out that way, like the crossing of voices in that way. It would, it would. The crossing of voices is not mm-hmm. a thing that usually happens in in classical harmony. Um, well, I mean, they're not cross. Mm, yeah, no, you see, no, that's wrong. Uh, they they if they were flipped, if everything were flipped the other way, then it would make sense in terms of voices. There you go. Uh, I'm really sorry, Artifexia. <laughs> this has been so niche so far. I've really enjoyed this, but to God, it's very, very, very niche. <laughs> but in conclusion, it's a boss coat of arms. It's really cool. It's very, very cool. Uh, I particularly like it because of the music. Uh, I study music and the color scheme. I live within that color scheme. Um, <laughs> so that's really cool. Uh, now, a coat of arms uh, leads us on to uh, heraldry. Oh, well, mm-hmm. it, is, it is a form of heraldry and we have some f- uh, heraldry uh, feedback from the last episode which I don't remember it's been a long time since recorded I don't actually remember why we are receiving heraldry feedback but we are um, I don't know um, what- I think it was to do with the the Fakel Portos flag um, and we, we, we mentioned it briefly uh, in relation to that as far as I remember oh yeah we meant no wait no, did we not talk about the flag? We talk- No, we talked about the flag video and how I was like, simplicity is not always, uh, is it quite a modern construct? Sure, look at heraldry back in the day. I think that was... Yeah. 
Yes, for that, sure. That was it. Yeah. So we we had a comment on the Reddit from uh, a user N6TJA, um, mm-hmm. who uh, left us. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to describe this because it's indescribable uh, on podcast form. If I don't have like an hour to do so, who left us the facal facal portus of heraldry, like a ridiculously messy, yeah, over the top, like. My eyes are bleeding. My head hurts. I need to go lie down. Coat of arms. I'll put this in the show notes. You should mm-hmm. check it out. It's it's intense. They use this as an example to say that complex heraldry isn't actually good heraldry, which I didn't know. Uh, apparently, mm-hmm. good heraldry, according to this commenter, is much closer to like good vexillology, like very simplistic. Yeah. Uh, and that that's really really interesting. And they, uh, I might even link the the thread so you can hear exactly what they had to say. But they left ten rules of heraldry, which I'm just going to really quickly read through because I think they're very interesting. So, um, rule number one. Uh, oh, and I'm paraphrasing here just to save time. So if I forget some minutia, I, I apologize. I just want to get the like the guts of it out. Um, rule number one: uh, only her- heraldic tinctures are to be used. The metals, gold and silver. And the colors red, blue, black, and green, which is interesting. That's a lot more restrictive than uh, vexillology. I just think it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, rule number two: uh, the use of only two tinctures, one of which is metal, is preferred. The use of a third tincture requires good reasons, but a fourth is definitely bad heraldry, which I think is a good rule. Uh, rule three: one must not place color on or next to color or metal on or next to metal unless the line of contact is very short. So it's kind of like a contrast rule, which I think is very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rule number four, (laughs) everyone's favorite, no letters, no numbers, no text, period. (laughs) Uh, Rule number five, uh, figures must be big and must fill the space appropriately. So this is kind of like, I'm imagining you should be able to see this at small scales. Um, Rule number six, stylization is preferred over natural presentation. So don't, you know create a, a like a Leonardo da Vinci version of a lion, create a stylized lion. Uh, rule mm-hmm. number seven, charges should be two-dimensional, no shading or extra borderlines. I agree with that. Uh, rule number eight, it should be easy to remember. So kind of like there should be, be able to be reproduced from memory sort of thing. Uh, rule number nine, repetition is forbidden. One idea must not be symbolized with two or more charges. So that's, I think that's really cool. And rule number 10, final rule, the seal must be reproducible from a written description without a model, mm-hmm. which I think is really class. Because And if, that's a particularly cool thing for heraldry because like there's so much art in how they describe uh, what's going on. Yeah. Um, so I think they're, they're really cool. And the surprising thing about this list is that it was kind of close to what vexillology uh, does, which I think is really cool. Yeah. The, yeah, th- this, this is really cool. Um, and when I said in the last episode that like it can be really complex, I was referring to that kind of the the facal portos version, I, and maybe not ones as advanced as that. But you you know when you have someone trying to portray a a huge aristocratic lineage, then they can have you know eight or sixteen things on their on their arms. Um, but like that's the same thing as having having a an ugly flag, yeah, and so on. And it definitely like they're definitely these these rules are are useful i i'm curious as to what uh the appraisal of uh, governor general payette's arms would be under those rules because it I, it seems to break some of them uh now okay i'm not a heritage officer so you're going to need to explain to me again. a coat of arms is the entire thing yeah 
as or, far as I understand, yeah. Okay, it's not just a seal in the middle because the seal in the middle is good. I mean, like, yeah, okay. There's it's it's not exactly two D, but it's two simple. Yeah, colors. it says here coat of arms, uh, like on the description on the Governor General's website, it says coat of arms, and then it explains the entire thing under that heading. So yeah, I think the whole thing counts as the coat of arms, whereas the the crest is the bit on the top, and the shield is the the bit in the middle, and, and so on. I mean, like heraldry seems to be. Uh, like as a rule a little bit more complex than flag designs as is so mm-hmm. in, in the heraldry world i don't think this is terrible uh like i don't think this is bad at all there's like what is it? there's like five elements say to it give or take mm-hmm. um okay yeah maybe not everything is is incredibly uh 2d but, but we also don't yeah. know that that there is, there is text for example there is um, text there is text um yeah you uh n6tja let us know what you think, because yeah. I, I believe this uh, this user is a mod of uh, or slash heraldry, which is which is really they cool. Are, yeah, really cool to have these folks in artifacts here. Let us know what you think about the Canadian coat of arms. That would be really interesting. Give us a, a heraldic uh, perspective on what's going on and what could be changed to make it better, if needs be. That would be really interesting. Should, there's a there's a thread on it here from a from about four months ago, so maybe we could link that and see what people cool people think. Cool, definitely. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah, that, that was the other thing. I love the fact that in heraldry, it's it must be reproducible and recognizable from a written description. Yeah. So that two artists will make things that are they're not visually identical, but they're symbolically identical, and there's the room for interpretation and, and individualistic style on it. I think I think that's a, a, a great thing about heraldry. Yeah, I think that that proper cool, very very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, leaving it open for the artist to be able to like do their own thing, I think is really, really awesome. Very, very good. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, while we're on the subject of Fakal, Fak- I never pronounced it correctly, while we're on the subject of Fakal Portos, the terrible, mm-hmm. terrible flag to end all terrible flags from the last thing, uh, I put a call out um, for people to translate the vortex of uh, Russian word vomit in the middle of the flag. And yeah. we, we got a translation, which before starting recording, I was like, I'll just read this out in recording. But it's it, it's very long and it's very detailed. So <laughs> I'm going to give you the first little bit and I'm going to put the the, the full translation that we got from a U slash Abagu uh, in the show notes. And you can read it and reference it with the flag and be delighted at the wonderful, wonderful language. So here's the first little bit. Formation of the altruists, candidates, into evolving love, poetrified union, union for the development of the theory of common happiness, humanizing of those who are doomed hapless apes, study of logic, logic of the interest of human technocratic society, eco-technological organization, Esperanto technology, and it goes on, and it's just this word vomit of, of like, it just makes no sense. Essentially, I think this, this is their manifesto uh, in Russian, wrapped in a spiral, thrown into the center of their flag. And it's just bonkers. Like it Amazing. is, it is literally bonkers. And it's just so fun. <laughs> oh, and I love, at the very end it goes, um, where can I pick this up? Let me see. Uh, labor development and universalists and generalists bearing the name of the officer of the alpha group, hero of Russia, Gennady Sergeyev <laughs> bearing okay. the name of the Alpha Group, hero of Russia. It's just so weird. Let's um, see who Gennady Sergeyev is. <laughs> I, man, I'm telling you, the internet police are going to come and shut down your operation for all your dodgy searches you've performed over the past. 
Uh, okay, I'm not getting a, a clear answer here. Uh, I don't think there's some... anything clear about Fakel Portos, man. <laughs> he oh, he was an FSB officer. Okay. Uh, FSB. Um, they're one of the, the the state security arms of of Russia. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's weird. Like it's weird to laugh about this, but I also feel like there's like a kind of a quite dark undercurrent going on here. Um, yeah, I think there is. But it's all bonkers anyway. So uh, it's in the show notes. Uh, go check it out. It's it, it's great. <laughs> it's just great. Uh, anyhow, so uh, if there isn't anything else to say, I think that concludes uh, follow-up. I think that does conclude our follow-up. Will we plow into the writer's room, which I'm going to edit in the show notes so you don't complain to me. Main topic is not main topic. <laughs> it's writer's room because I am friends with the world's largest pedant. No, why? Don't be writing up. <laughs> Ah, I hate you so much. <laughs> okay, so uh, as always, uh, Bill has done some world building uh, and my world building has come in the form of making videos. So we're going to talk about these things. We're going to start off with Bill's uh, stuff and breaking from form and setting new precedents. We're going to record uh, Bill's prose separately and drop it in here in a bit so you can actually hear the story but mm -hmm. i do want to encourage people to still go over to bill's site because that's where you'll host the pros and and check it out because it's, it's good for bill and the getting hits and things like that mm -hmm. uh but for those of you that can't like you're on mobile for example or whatever you're out in a run you'll be able to hear the story so uh i i guess we're gonna play it now bill yeah yeah roll it The sun's tears struck Janspar in the last days of spring in 1332 Aor. They chiefly impacted on the land of Selmia, though smaller fragments of solar material landed all over the planet. The intensity of the sun's tears utterly destroyed Selmia. For hundreds of miles the land was ravaged and burned, leaving no trace of the nations that inhabited that wide country. All land north of the Rosava range from the Kalmar Ocean to the southern base of the Unas Peninsula was utterly annihilated. Many of the Rasava Mountains themselves erupted, casting smoke and ash into the sky. As well as the destruction wrought on land, the sea boiled. Great waves struck all along the eastern side of the Unas Peninsula, destroying maritime settlements there. Waves were reported as far away as Pirco and Ishkona, sufficient to wreck harbours and smash smaller boats. The strength of the impact rocked the planet itself, causing earthquakes that were particularly destructive in Glaare and around the coasts of Kuathona. It is impossible to determine how many people perished in this event. As the land of Selmia and the nations residing there were utterly destroyed, no census records exist to allow us to accurately estimate the number of souls that died under the sun's tears. Piecing together those records that remain extant in other nations, however, scholars suggest that a lower estimate of 200,000 mortals may have died in Selmia alone. Thousands more doubtless died at sea, in the earthquakes and destructive waves that occurred after the impact, and in the smaller impacts around Janspar. To this day, nearly two centuries later, Selmia remains a scorched and barren land, uninhabited by mortality. What few explorers have dared to venture on the shore there report a country scarred beyond repair, where nothing but the most meagre forms of life can be found. 
the impact of the sun's tears seems to have altered the landscape considerably. Though no complete survey of the shore or the interior has been taken, navigational charts from before the impact no longer appear to be accurate. Much of Old Selmia may now lie below the waves, and there may be new land now found there, raised from the sea. The effect of the impact on the planet cannot be overestimated. The ash and smoke cast into the air blocked the heat of the sun, and for several years afterwards, Janspar experienced weak summer seasons. This period, lasting until 1337 AOR, is known to scholars as the Long Winter, or the Years of Rust. In this time, unseasonal frosts and chaotic weather blighted the entire planet. Crop failures were widespread, and many nations suffered severe famines. Global trade diminished, and distant nations became almost entirely isolated from each other. The great Ishkonan fleets continued to circle the globe and provide trade and assistance where they could, but the unpredictable weather disrupted even these constant travellers. Even after the end of the years of rust, it took many more decades for global trade to reach the levels it had known before the sins of Amulin. Theologians and scholars cannot agree on what the cause of the sun's tears was, though nearly all acknowledge that it is somehow connected to the sins and tyranny of Amulin. Most authorities maintain that the tears were sent to destroy Amulin and to punish mortality for its failure to prevent his atrocities. Some believe, and here a portion of the text appears to have been erased by water damage. A minority of scholars particularly those concerned with studying demons and anti-sermal religion, believe it to be connected to the demonic solar entity named Khin Alet. That was an excellent story, Bill. Congratulations. <laughs> Cheers, man. <laughs> So, do you want to, uh, to put this in context, do you want to give a brief summary of uh, part one of the story from last month and then talk a little bit about this one and what's going on? And then I have some thoughts afterwards. Sure thing. So, last month I put the, the first bit of the story, um, which is how Amulin, who I mentioned in, in this month's excerpt, came to power. And that's, that's pretty much it. Amulin came to power and what he did and the setup or what the sins of Amulin were or what they were, they were thought to be and then how the the sun's tears came to Janspar. Yeah, the last the last bit of the story was that a bit of the sun had been cleaved off and was heading straight for Janspar and then we were left mm -hmm. on a cliffhanger and this is the resolution of it. Yeah. Um yeah, thoughts on this one? Uh, or give us a I'm, TLDR. Uh, well, I mean, you've listened to it there, so it's it's a description of what happened when the sun's tears struck Anspar and the result of it. Uh, and that's it, really. <laughs> uh, so I have I have two points that struck me. Uh, okay. When when I was reading this, uh, point number one is uh, interesting point. Global population. Mm -hmm. You say here, if I recall correctly, that about two hundred thousand. Mortals may have died in mm -hmm. in this event. Um, yeah. Now this sounds like a uh, like a planet wide catastrophe, um, and only two hundred thousand people died. So this gave me the impression that uh, Janspar is a very sparsely 
populated world? Because I, I'd, no, imag- I'd imagine if 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 uh, the sun tears happened on Earth, uh, we'd lose billions, like maybe one or two billion people. So uh, am I correct in thinking that, that Yanspar is very sparsely populated? No. Oh. Hmm. 200,000 people died in Selmia alone. Oh, okay. But even then, Selmia being a, a, a nation, yeah? Yeah. That's a very, very small, like, small nation. Mm, it's not a, a hugely populous area. Um, and it had just had, you know, a, a decade or so of bitter, bitter civil war. Hmm. Okay. And so, it's like the yeah. It's I mean it's not hugely populous by modern standards, but it's not at a kind of a modern level of technology. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh. So okay. Now how do I phrase this to get information out of you? Because you're never forthcoming with these things. Uh, <laughs> uh, not ha- for Yanspar. Not for other projects. Uh, I am. But Yanspar ha- is is separate. Okay. Has ha- have any uh ha- has any writer in Yanspar ever documented uh, the total global population of Yanspar? Yes. Yes. Could you... Yeah. Uh, would you be able to tell us uh, <laughs> what the total global population is that they estimated? No, I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's like pulling feet. Okay, that's cool. Right? So, so my, I got- my guess would be that it, uh, at the time of yeah, I suppose it, 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 I would say it would probably be around the same at at uh, the the time of uh, the sins of Amulin as the time of the writing of this. It will be in the hundreds of millions. Okay, and just just for Earth reference, like uh, when was Earth at like hundreds of millions? Do you have any idea? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Let me check. Yeah, because I've I've a very bad idea as to what human population was over the course of history. Uh, it reached one billion in the year eighteen o four. So I guess yeah, kind of sixteen hundred, seventeen hundreds. Okay. Oh, cool. Uh, let's say Earth population sixteen hundred. Uh, yeah, and going on the previous point about um, sci-fi writing. Um, I think mm-hmm. this is uh, this is a good example of uh, withholding information because you could have easily said something like you know um, two hundred people two hundred thousand mortals died in Selmia alone uh, that would be one seventh of the total population of the world and go into a big spiel uh, yeah but it's really nice that I read that and I was I was I was made to think and be kind of like how big is this place how big is mm-hmm. Selma how many people are in the world I think that's really yeah. cool. So that was point one. Point two. Now, I don't know whether or not the, the thing you have just uh, narrated uh, or the thing you post will have uh, will be edited slightly, but you have blank spaces here. Uh, yeah, the, the, the version, the, the text version I've sent you is just I needed to figure out some of the names and check my old notes that I don't have to hand. Right. OK, now I realize this will be edited, but this is interesting. You're big into your un uh, or your your narrators, like and mm-hmm. whether or not they're reliable or unreliable. Uh, like the idea that mm-hmm. we hear about Yanspar through the people of Yanspar. Yeah. Have you ever thought about the idea of making like an unreliable document, like a document that has uh, I don't know had like its ink washed away or it's like worn over the years, such that part of the whole narrative process is that there's huge chunks of information missing. Literally, kind of like some believe space mm-hmm. continue on with next point has that ever been a thing that you've you've wanted to do 
Uh, I haven't thought about it that much, but it would it would be a. I mean, I, I guess it's 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 been there sort of, but yeah, it would be a very logical uh, progression from my from my method and from my my thinking behind this. Yeah, because I really like especially that last bit uh, where the the line that goes "some believe," um, and then there's a big gap. I was kind of thinking mm-hmm. to myself like. It, or has this been redacted? Maybe the person <laughs> who is writing this doesn't want people to know what some may believe. Maybe that's a bit of dangerous mm-hmm. information. So I th- actually thought that was a deliberate thing on your part, and I was kind of like, "This is a little bit of genius here." So c- can I can I can I suggest something? Yes. Could you maybe not complete that line and just leave it like redacted? <laughs> <laughs> like I would I'll I, consider it. I would complete the line on uh, in the second paragraph where you say all land north of Rasava of the Rasava range from the something ocean. Like that clearly strikes me as like uh, an editorial thing. You've yet to you've yet yeah, to I have that written down somewhere and I can't remember where I've written it down right. and I haven't been really in Yanspar much recently so. Right, but that strikes me as something that needs to be filled in whereas the some yeah. the some believe something it's just so much more interesting. If you don't fill it out, you're kind of like, what is it? What do they believe? What is this big conspiracy theory? It's brilliant. I, I, think, I think I I strongly, strongly urge to, when you go to record this and when you go to upload it, leave it redacted. Please do. How will I affect that in the recording? Um, Just space. Just say some, some believe. A minority of scholars. Yeah, it'll make sense because we're talking about it. And it's easy, obviously, on your website. It'll, it'll make sense afterwards when the listeners get to this bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's not that far. It's like five minutes away. I, I think that's really cool. And that has that has really piqued my interest, the idea of the unreliable document. Like the document in and of itself is literally an artifact mm-hmm. of the world. And it is yeah, subject... Well, everything everything in Janspar is. Right, but it is subject to the forces on Janspar, like, you know, erosion and decaying yeah. with time. So the thing you receive has literally... Mistranslation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's a, I think that's a glorious idea. And I realise it's entirely not intentional on your part, but I love it. I think it's so cool. Um, so those those are my, my two kind of points about it. Um, mm-hmm. two, two main ones. I suppose the only other point I wanted to find out from you is what does uh, the your year system... It's 1332AOR. Yeah. Um, what does AOR stand for? After... Something. No, um, I, I have this somewhere on, on my blog. I think it's one of the, the first posts I have. Let me just find it here. It, it means um, the Ishkonan Reckoning. Okay, no, but, but that is the letter I and OR. Oh, oh, A-E-S, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, cool, yeah, cool. Ishkonan Reckoning. So it's, um, I have this written down here somewhere. I'll, I'll get it exactly. Dates are calculated from divinity's first revelation to the Ishkone. So the first contact that the gods, uh, who are like the, the main gods of Janspar, had with this civilization, the Ishkone. And they were the ones who, who went forth and kind of brought this message to the rest of the planet and brought like their idea of religion and civilization to a sort of a, a pre-historic, not exactly prehistoric, um, but to a... To, to a, a, a less technologically advanced uh, world. Cool. Uh, and what yeah. uh, what happened before AOR? Like, what is minus one AOR? What's the dating system there? Um, I guess it would be something like BOR. Okay. All right. Before you're t- Revelation. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's really cool. I really like that. Uh, yeah. 
those, those are my points on it. I think, as always, mm-hmm. it's a really good, really good piece of prose. And th- yeah, those are my my main points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Cool. Anything you uh, want is, to add? Is it a, is it a satisfactory uh, follow up to to last month's prose? Uh, I mean, yeah, you describe what happens. I suppose the only thing that's not really satisfactory is that I I do, still don't really understand the whole like sun splitting apart. Like uh, I was kind of expecting some sort of explanation of that, like uh, whether it's divine or whatever. Like I'm left yeah. I'm left with thinking that they just the 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 uh, Yansparian people. I don't know the exact the exact. Um, nationality of these people uh just don't understand astrophysics very well and they're you know there was like a comet coming or a meteor coming and they just thought it came from the sun like that's that's my um okay that's my reading of it uh yeah i i, I kind of as a reader i'd be interested to know what actually went on with the sun okay um I, I care to elaborate or do we have to wait for some scholar in Jansbar to write something <laughs> um they they they've got pretty good idea of of space stuff. Okay, such that yeah. they're not okay. So they would understand that a sun could not tear in half. Yeah, well, I never suggested that it was in half. Or or a, whatever, a bit a bit could come off it. Um, and they like they 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 tracked it coming like its location in space as it approached. They they tracked that it came from the sun. So so what is it? Is it literally just a part of the sun? It's yeah, it's it's solar material. It's solar material. So this is it a flare that has like hit the planet? But sure, that can't be because flares won't will never extend out to hit a planet. Like yeah, it's it's yeah, it's not it's not literally a flare. No. Okay, is this a natural occurrence? Like, is this something that exists in real life, or you've just made up a mechanic? It's not a natural thing. No, it's not. It's not. It's not a real world thing. Okay, so this is some some sort of divine intervention. Like the gods have been like, we've I've angered you. Uh, you've angered me. Uh, I am going to unleash hell using the power of the sun. Well, theologians debate what it is. <laughs> it's, it really is like falling deep. <laughs> um, any other points that I wanted to add? Uh, yeah, the the thing about the the long winter and the years of rust that's based on uh, or inspired by historical events. Mm. Oh, there's you tell. A, there's a few of them. There was the Actually, I had all these yesterday. Let me let me get the the right the right names. So there was the eruption of Krakatoa uh, in 1883. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after that, uh, it actually affected the global climate for a couple of years afterwards. Uh, temperatures fell by like a full degree all all around the world, and it like it disrupted weather patterns and stuff. And there was another uh, volcanic eruption in 1815. Um, oh, I had it there. The uh, eruption of Mount Tambora. Mount Tambora. Where is which that? Which is in Indonesia. It's in modern day Indonesia, and it so that erupted in eighteen fifteen, and let me think this. Yeah, so eighteen sixteen was known as the year without a summer. Because like it, temperatures and and stuff was affected so much that like crops failed all around the world, as a result of that, it had this huge effect on on the global uh, climate again. And there was an earlier one in the five hundreds. Uh, I'm not sure where that eruption took place, but there's evidence from all around the world 
that there was an unexpectedly uh, low temperature and like poor summers for a couple of years in the mid 500s and it's recorded in Irish annals it's recorded in uh, uh, Maya records so it's like all over the world this like Hmm. huge thing happened there was mass famines and stuff oh very cool very cool I like yeah there is a sense of realism to that bit um, I didn't know those events uh, in particular. I, the Krakatoa one uh, is somewhat familiar to me, but the rest, not really. Um, but there mm-hmm. is a sort of sense of like, this could legitimately happen in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I really like Years of Rust uh, as a name Cheers. for the thing. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's really cool. It's like, it, it's a little bit non-obvious um, and kind of quite poetic. So I think that's a really cool name. Thank you. Uh, I, do, you know, do you know what I really, I thought was quite... Uh, sort of uh zeitgeisty uh in mm-hmm. sort of in a sort of like a logical leap sort of way uh following the years of rust or during the years of rust global trade diminished um yeah. and nations became isolated from each other i think that's really like pertinent given what's going on currently in the world uh in terms of like it's it's obviously that's like environmental isolation like environmental um factors have caused isolation but currently it's like political yeah. isolation and economic ones and economic ones, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. But given that we are, like, I'm reading a lot of stuff these days about, like, how um, the world goes through uh, periods of isolation and periods of kind of communism, not the political mm-hmm. philosophy, but, like, to be in commune with one another. Yeah. And we're currently, lots of people think that we're currently in a period of, like, uh, leaning towards uh, more isolation. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, nationalism is on the rise and nations like bolster up and become like isolated from everyone else so i read that and was kind of like it was very much like what's happening here uh at the moment so i thought that was kind of cool um but yeah cool it's cool yeah do you have any other points thanks so much um i don't think so no i think i think it's it's all pretty much it's all there uh hopefully it'll it'll make sense and be a satisfactory follow-up to last week or to last month. Um, from a writing point of view, uh, I'm trying to write from the perspective of several different people uh, within Janspar. And uh, it's it's a lot of work to, to keep track of the different writing styles and make them distinct voices. And I'm not sure how well I've done that here because this is obviously the same writer as... as last month um, in universe and I'm not sure how well the the style has been copied over but this is probably the person who I'm going to be writing from the point of view of the most so maybe it makes sense for this to be the closest to my own natural voice hmm. um, that, that's that's just like an, an ongoing kind of challenge for me to, to keep track of the different the different voices and the different styles that they use and keep the language fairly consistent uh, um, I'd have to go back. I mean, I can always go back and edit it. I'm sure you can, of course. Uh, I'd have to go back and and read uh, last month's uh, piece of prose, but I, mm-hmm. that didn't strike me uh, when reading this. I I wasn't kind of like, wow, this seems like an entirely different stylistic thing going on. Um, okay, it felt Good. it felt consistent. Uh, now again, to to emphasize, I could be wrong. I might have to go back and read it, but um, but yeah, no, mm-hmm. I thought I thought it was consistent. Um, cool. Well done, man. Thank you. 
Um, I, I look forward I look forward to next month's bit of build pros and you know genuinely I think I really look forward to the idea of the recording being in the actual podcast I think that could be really cool we'll whack on some atmospheric music under you and it'll, <laughs> it'll sound great I think it'll be really cool um, yeah excellent awesome alright okay do you want to uh, do you want to move on to uh, my bit of world building yeah let's let's move on which which isn't really world building it's con Um and like I said <laughs> start, it still counts it still counts and like I said, start, uh, because I'm making videos, um, again, most of my time is taken up making these videos. So most of the world building I do will be videos, uh, video based. Mm-hmm. And we'll use the podcast as like a, a sort of discussion um, uh, around the peripherals of, of what has occurred in video land. Um, so whilst we're recording this, there's only been one video out since the last recording. And that's uh, Nouns, A Case of Case. Uh, mm-hmm. But I am, uh, on the day of recording this, I'm going to publish uh, the next one tonight. And that's, uh, the video is called Dog is a Gender. So we've received public feedback on the first video, but not on the second video. Um, so I have okay. less less to say about the second video, but there's a couple of things. So starting with a case of case, for those who haven't seen that video, it is essentially me trying to describe in very simplistic terms uh, what noun case systems are and how to construct a noun case system for a language, uh, which I think is an interesting thing to do because uh, English doesn't really deal with it all that much. Um, And TLDR, it's basically uh, a way of encoding uh, stuff, like the stuff that prepositions do in English, like in, at, Mm -hmm. to, from, encoding that sort of stuff onto the nouns, plus some extra grammatical stuff. Um, yeah. So that's what it's the, nouns relationships to verbs and to each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, also, yeah, yeah, relationships to verbs is a good idea. That that describes the SVO style thing that uh, that's going on. Um, mm-hmm. So there are a couple of bits of feedback that I want to put on the podcast just to make sure everyone's clear and a bit of extra extra talking points. Uh, number one, uh, the nominative case. The nominative case is like uh, in a sentence. If I say like uh, Bill writes prose bill is the subject of the sentence um and that is the nominative case uh, in the video i showed a inflection scheme where the nominative case had some sort of marking like uh, billa writes prose but it's mm-hmm. more it's much more common in language to leave the nominative case unmarked um and i just wanted to flag that and bring it up that like the unmarking the lack of marking on a thing is also part of, like, inflection. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like, not having a thing is also like having a thing. So please don't go and make languages where everything has all sorts of weird inflection going on all over the place. Like, some things won't have inflection. I think that's important, particularly the nominative case, because it's kind of like the base case. Mm-hmm. Makes sense? That does make sense. Uh, point number two, uh, the genitive case. Uh, I was like, oh, it's like English's possession. And that is true. But in a more general sense, and I should have been more general here, the genitive case uh, marks a noun modifying another noun. And, okay. and possession is a subset of that. Like, genitive mm. goes beyond just merely possession. And uh, the final thing is idea of syncretism, which I've talked about in the video that's about to come out. But I want to emphasize here again, because I got a lot of flack for not talking about syncretism. Syncretism is the idea that languages evolve and morph over time. And through this process, 
uh, very often uh, features become identical in sound to one another. So they would have started off different, but over time become exactly identical. Um, and in the inflection schemes I showed in the video, it was, uh, everything was unique. Every inflection was unique. They were all, all different. And that's not entirely naturalistic. Uh, you should aim to have certain inflections be similar. Do you know? Right. Yeah. And the example I give in, in the next video is, uh, imagine uh, you had two inflections, two suffixes. Uh, one is ka and one is ki. And imagine over time the language just for some reason dropped all final vowels. Uh, ka would turn into k and ki would turn into k. So there you have two suffixes who perform different roles because of where they came from, but both sound ex exactly the same. And this thing happens all I the time you. in language. And that should be a part of the Conlanger's toolkit. And uh, that is something I just need to emphasize over, uh, over and over again here. So it's like how in German, there are 16 kind of ways to inflect the definite article, but there aren't 16 separate definite articles. Like you use D for several different purposes. Right, exactly, exactly. That, that now, kind of thing. Now, I'm not entirely sure if that's a, a, a case of syncretism, like as in it, they all were at one time unique and then they collapsed um, down or whether they were kind of always like that. But yes, okay. functionally, functionally, that's what you want at the end. If you hand your grammar to someone, it, it shouldn't have unique features everywhere. So just like Bill said, I got you. if it's like there's 16 definite articles, only have maybe like, 13 forms and double up on yeah. some usage uh, and also so, so it, syncretism is specifically when disparate elements become the same uh yeah as far as i know okay let me, let me just get okay. up a uh, a definition of this um uh the merging so this is according to google's uh google's dictionary the merging of different inflectional varieties of a word during the development of language so it's specifically right. the merging of things like things becoming yeah. identical um, gotcha. So that is a point I need to hammer home more in other videos. Now, the final point on this, uh, I apologize for going on with this loads, but I think it's important, um, mm -hmm. is a lot of people, a lot of people were like, hey, you totally forgot to talk about a thing called morphosyntactic alignment. Uh, uh, so many comments were, were talking about this. Uh, I just have to put on record that that, that thing is going to get its own video um for definite but just to answer some of those things here uh do you know what morphosyntactic alignment is bill edgar i yes. do not know what morphosyntactic alignment is <laughs> yeah it's not one of those things that are really obvious do you know what nominative accusative languages are um i understand what nominative and accusative is, I don't understand in what way that distinguishes a language from languages that are not that. Okay, right. So let, let's go to the full... I, I will link I will link a uh, David Peterson video on this thing. It's called Ergativity. And this is basically okay. to do with... Uh, more okay. I've, I've heard of Ergativity, but I don't understand what it is. Right. Can I explain it to you? And in so doing, explain it to the listeners. Please do. <laughs> I actually genuinely did, was wondering... I, I looked this up the other day and I wasn't quite able to follow it at, at the time. Okay, now, just for the internet here, uh, I'm going off the cuff here, so just just take that with a grain of salt here. Like, this Be isn't gentle. a highly re researched thing. It's just, I'm trying to just explain it as I think about it. Okay, so there's a couple of steps here. Step number one, transitivity. We need to understand transitivity, right? Uh, you mm -hmm. can have transitive and intransitive verbs. 
uh, intransitive verbs only take one argument. So, for example, like, Bill cries. You know, it's not like Bill cries home. You know, cries doesn't demand a second argument. You have one argument and then the verb. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, okay. So an argument is a noun that it refers to or something. Right, exactly. So you have okay. argument, noun, verb, and then you don't it, you don't need anything else after it. Like Or like okay. the man slept. You know, that, that is a contained thing in and of itself. And that's called intransitive. Okay. Why is the word argument used there? Is it because it can refer to other things than nouns? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, I would imagine that's just linguistic terminology. I really don't know. Okay. Um, but, but are you with me though? I'm with you. You're with me. Okay, so that's one form. The next form is transitive, and that's where you have argument, verb, argument. So right. like Bill ate cake. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So you have argument, verb, argument. So you have intransitive and transitive verbs. Yes? Okay. You with me? I think so. Okay, right. Now, in an intransitive sentence, like uh, Bill. Okay, but hold on. Eight. You could just say Bill ate. That doesn't uh, require okay, anything that, else. Okay, that's a bad example. I'll use the P- David Peterson example. Uh, the fish okay. devoured the flower. Okay. See, the fish. You you can't have the fish devoured. You have to have the fish devoured the flower. Okay. It requires an object. It requires something. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, okay. Now, in an intransitive sentence, like Bill slept, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we call Bill the subject. Now, this is not mm-hmm. to be confused with SVO subject. Just just take that as being a linguistic term, subject. It's okay. a bad naming convention, but that is the subject. You with me? Okay. Yeah? And in a transitive sentence, say, Bill devoured the fish. Bill, we call, uh, we call Bill the uh, agent, right? He is, Bill in that sentence is enacting the action, the devouring, but he's also, but he's not being devoured. Someone else is getting right. that. Do you understand? Whereas, okay. whereas in the transitive thing, Bill is both enacting the sleep and he is sleeping. Right. Right. So that's what the subject does and that's what the agent does. And then the uh, patient would be the fish. Bill devoured the fish. The fish is the patient argument. Yeah. Uh, upon, upon who the verb is acting. Right, exactly. So it's key okay. to understanding ergativity and this morphosyntactic alignment is the difference between the subject, the agent, and the patient. The subject is enacting uh, and also experiencing a thing, the ver- like sleeping. Yes. The agent is enacting but not experiencing the thing, like devouring. Bill devours something. And the mm-hmm. something is the patient, the one being devoured in this example. Okay. All right. Now, the vast majority of languages are are so-called nominative accusative languages, and they treat the subject and the agent identically and usually don't mark it. They make no distinction between a person who is enacting and experiencing something or something that is just enacting. Right? Okay. So there's no distinction between transitive and intransitive verbs? uh, No, no. There's no distinction on the nouns. On the, oh, okay. on the subject okay. and the agent nouns of transitive and intransitive verbs. They usually put some sort of distinction on the patient. Right. So they, they treat, they basically group the subject and the agent together, treat them as a similar concepts, and then yeah. treat the patient as being the uh, being a different concept and highlighting yeah. that, right? As in English and German and so on, gotcha. As in English, German, the Japanese, like tons of languages do this. 
Uh, and then, so the other option, actually, there's a couple of options. The other big option is uh, ergative, ergative absolutive languages. And they basically treat the subject and the patient as identical, but highlight the agent. Okay. So, which I think is fascinating because they make a linguistic distinction between a person who is like, uh, who is enacting and experiencing and a person who is just enacting. And I think that's a really like nuanced way of viewing the world that we don't do in English. So that is basically ergativity. Uh, please so don't... So sleep is something that happens to you rather than a thing you do. It is both. You both, you both enact the sleep and you both experience the sleep. And that's what makes you the subject. And the, the easy way of spotting but this is that in it's... Ergative, in ergative languages, it's different. In ergative languages, the same thing occurs, except that they will mark an agent. So Bill devoured the fish. They will mark that to just set it aside from a regular subject, like Bill slept. Because they're making okay. a distinction in their heads. They're, to, to them... Uh, oh, sorry. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, to them, someone who sleeps is performing a uniquely different role to someone who is, say, devouring, and that's to do okay. with the transitivity of verbs, basically. Um, okay, I think so I follow. It's just it's very hard to do without graphics. <laughs> you really need graphics to explain this, uh, but that's essentially what ergativity is, and it's just another way of kind of grouping arguments. Uh, in, and there in will a be a video on this, will there? There will one hundred percent be a video on this, um, because there's there you can go and take that a step further. You can also kind of group different things as well, and it gets mm -hmm. very complex and very in depth. And I actually don't know much about. It. I have to go research it, uh, such that it could not. I couldn't speak about this in in the nouns video because it would have just been like fluff. Like it it isn't central to the idea of of uh, explaining to someone what cases are. Um, so I just thought I'd put it here. Does that make sense, Bill? I, I think it does. Again, it's very high with graphics. Okay, so th those are my points on uh, the nouns video. Uh, dog is a gender. Uh, again, while we're recording this, no one has seen this apart from the patrons and Bill. Um, essentially, this video, uh, it'll be linked in the show notes, but essentially this video is uh, discussing a thing called a noun class system. And like basically, noun class systems are gender. Like what we think of as gender in languages is basically yeah. a noun class system and gender. My sort of argument is that gender isn't a unique, uh, special snowflake of a feature. It's literally just a noun class system. And I think once you understand it in the context of a noun class system, you suddenly begin to realize why it occurs and why, like, cause if you don't think about it, gender seems like a real bonkers idea to do. Like yeah. the idea that a table is masculine a, yeah. a, a lamp is feminine and uh, a wall is neuter. It makes no sense, really. But when you take it into the noun class system, suddenly it's like, oh, it's just a way of grouping. Yeah. That's it. We just group and we happen to have called them masculine, feminine or masculine, feminine, neuter. Um, and actually, like, from what I understand from speaking to people and who, who, who speak languages that have uh, specifically gendered noun class systems they don't actually think of them as gendered. It's just it's just a, a coincidence that they're called that and that they occasionally match up with uh, features of biological sex. Right, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. when it's I It's not speak... part of their cognition to think of them, think of a table as female or whatever. Right, exactly. Like when I, uh, like I, I'm not a fluent German speaker by any means, but when I think of a dog, 
uh, and it's their hund. I, I'm not necessarily thinking like the dog is innately masculine. I'm all I'm thinking is that the word hund must get paired with this word there, which is which just happens to be called yeah. masculine. Like it could be anything. Who cares? Um, but, but all anyhow. dogs are boys, though. Uh, yeah, that's how that's how dogs work, Bill. <laughs> all dogs are boys and all cats are girls. A dog is a boy animal, a girl is a, and a cat is a girl animal. Simple. Yeah, exactly. All, and all dogs wear blue and all cats wear pink. You know? No, that's that's absurd, Edgar. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Bill. I'm being very serious. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I haven't had a chance to get feedback from this video, so there aren't uh, any extra comments really to point out. There are mm-hmm. there are two things. Um, just a, a patron Isaac Silbert brought up that I think are like kind of interesting and, and interesting things to think about. Uh, there's a language called durable. I think it's durable. Uh, and I, I believe uh, I'm not checking this now, so correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's uh, an Aboriginal language from Australia, and it has noun classes. So it groups its nouns into semantic categories. Um, okay. And it takes it a step further than what I do in the video. Like, I group my nouns into, like, human, plants, liquids, that sort of thing. It has, like, a whole thing going on in the semantic fields. Like, one group, for example, according to Isaac Silbert, uh, groups women, water, fire, violence, and other dangerous things (laughs) all in the one group. So, I think this is important for Conlang. If you are to do noun class systems it doesn't have to be a very narrow category. Like, it doesn't have to be just yeah. plants. It can be, pla- like, this group takes plants and uh, houses and airplanes or something like that. It can go quite broad. And and the, I think the really cool thing is that what your culture groups together can tell you loads about the culture, you know? Like, the idea that women fire violence and dangerous things are grouped together tells me something about their worldview like that no comment on what that worldview is but it tells me something i think that's really really cool and a real thing that you can exploit in conline what do, do you think that classing those things together tells them tells about their worldview yeah because you because you think of these things as being semantically related and that's tells you something about but how we, they think about the world like they would we just we just said that we like people who speak german don't think of tables as neutered so why would it be different in this language that they would think of those things as being connected that's a very good point Mm, i don't i don't have an answer for this something feels different about this oh okay maybe maybe i'm wrong here and i think it's different because i don't speak a noun class language and as such i think that there is constructed toth taught going on behind the construction of noun classes Mm. and i don't apply that same logic to german say because i just speak it and it just that's what it is Uh, mm, that's interesting this just it sounds a bit sapper warfy and and that's a fairly it's not a a well-regarded theory in, in in linguistics at the moment can i propose something for you to you then right in 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 the i can in the realms of conlang because remember we're not trying to replicate uh, a natlang per se we're trying to create a, a work of art that usually is applied to a book or some description right. would it be an idea to exploit this to be like okay maybe natlangs don't uh, 
hard bake their worldview into their classes, but I will to tell the reader something about the thing. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, I'd see. I think th- I still think there's something to be exploited there. But I uh, now that you pose this, I I'm leaning towards your idea that it's probably just random chance. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting, Bill. That's interesting. Um, and a final point, if I may, mm-hmm. really quickly. Um, uh, the uh, Isaac Silbert also brings up uh, this point, which he stresses does not occur in natural languages. This is important. Please don't, please don't write the guy if you find him on the internet and be like, "This is uh, you are wrong. This doesn't happen." He he has an idea. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, oh, wait, no, sorry, I checked that. It doesn't occur. But I still think it might be something you could apply to conlangs. So imagine we have an animate, inanimate system. So all nouns are either classes animate or all nouns are either classes inanimate. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What? Imagine a system whereby a noun can change group, right? Which is not unheard of. Like in German, for example, you have diese and derze. Same noun different gender and it has a different meaning so okay. Im- imagine nouns change group and imagine in changing group and messa like, as well uh, is messa also one yeah like the uh, d messa is mass and der messa is a market or something oh cool oh, i didn't know that um i think so okay. so it's not unheard of for things to change yeah or or maybe better said to exist in both but let's imagine that you could change and let's imagine you change an animate noun into an inanimate noun by some sort of marking. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that change could mark a change in like state, like a change in like volition or a change in agency. And that change could also have some sort of grammatical co- like uh, consequence to it. Right. I think now, again, to stress, uh, according to Isaac Silbert, this does not occur in that language. It's, it's just a, a made up thing that he dreamed up, apparently. But I think that could be interesting. That could be an interesting thing to do. The change of yeah. state is is literally highlighting a grammatical change of state. I think that's fascinating. I the 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 first thing that would occur to me there is uh, poetic use of it, or, Ooh, or kind yeah. of metaphorical use of it. Like, let me just think of an example. Um, someone using a tool, right? The tool is inanimate, but if they are you know using it particularly skillfully, it it becomes animate. Oh, so like a. A musician, yes. Like the they're playing a horn or whatever, but it becomes like the horn becomes animate as, as a mark of like how beautiful it's it's beautifully it's speaking. Or a uh, uh, a warrior, like she's a great swordswoman, and the sword becomes animate. Yes, Bill. As 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 a poetic or metaphorical device. I think that is. I think that's exactly it. I think that's great. I think that's really, really cool, a really cool thing you could do. Um, so that's just something for conlangers to watch out for. I think that might be cool. Well, now, again, really cool guy. you are a really cool guy, Bill. I need to stress <laughs> again that this doesn't occur in Nat Langs, according to Isaac Silbert. Please no one tell Isaac that he's wrong because he's not. He just had an idea. <laughs> but I think it's a good idea. Um, and, and that right there, unless you have anything else to add, is some peripheral points around the last two videos that I just want to highlight for anyone cool. who are uh, conlanging uh, such that they can get the full scope of what's going on. Super. Makes sense? Uh, I think it does, yeah. I think it okay. does. I really hope I didn't bore everyone by trying to explain ergativity. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't bore me. 
Oh, well, that's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, okay. Shall we crack into the green room? I think we should crack into the green room. Uh, Bill, I just talked for like 50 minutes, right? So like, you're going to have to do something here. Tell, tell me something that's green room ready. Uh, something that is green room ready. Well, I could talk about some media I've consumed recently. Uh, yeah, go for it. What, what happened? What you see? Or did you uh, read or watch? Or... I went to see Black Panther. Excellent. I was going to see it this weekend. I didn't get a chance mm-hmm. to because something came up. I really want to see it. It looks class. I'm not even interested in superhero films. Don't really care about them. But this, the thematic nature of this looks really good and I really want to see it. So be careful. With Strong your... recommend. Strong recommend. Okay. Strong recommend. All right. Be careful with the spoilers. And oh yeah, no spoilers. And from yeah, oh no spoilers. Okay, but from now on, any spoilerific parts of this podcast because we received a few complaints. Uh, yeah. Uh, hopefully, we'll we'll aim to. Sorry put, about that. that yeah, I, we, I'm sorry too. Um, we'll aim to put them in the green room. You okay. Know? So any spoilery parts will go in the green room from now on, so that you can just stop when we say let's go into the green room if you don't want spoilers. Would, in any, would it be possible to to put a timestamp for the end of the spoilers in the show notes? So you could say, we'll, we'll talk about this, and then the spoilers will end at, you know, an hour 15, so you can skip to there to avoid that discussion. Uh, yeah, but it, it's also, uh, there's problems with that. Like, one, it's it's more work on my part, uh, and then two, it's also kind of more work on the listener's part. Like, they have to actively skip. Oh, yeah, that. that's a good point. Um, so I think the best thing to do is that if we're recording, and uh, one of us feels compelled to talk about spoilers we just go something like mm-hmm. you know i have a point about six cents that i want to bring up Can we put that in the green room and we go yes yeah. and then we continue on and then we convene in the green room with our scotch and our cigars and we just talk <laughs> and, and we just talk of, and our shoehorns and we just talk about uh we just talk about the spoilers then if that makes sense yeah okay it's anyway but you said you've no spoilers that's great tell me about uh black panther uh, yeah, really, I really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, I, I quite like the Marvel Cinematic Universe anyway. Um, I've enjoyed most of the ones that I've seen. Um, and they, they cover a lot of different things, which I think is pretty cool. Like, the Winter Soldier is just, like, a really good James Bond film that happens to have superheroes in it. Uh, and so on. Um, but I, I, so yeah, strong recommend about, uh, Black Panther. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I would encourage people to see it. I want to talk a little bit about the world building it, though. This is what we do, Bill. We, uh, ostensibly, we talk about world building, so <laughs> go for it. Um, so it's set in a fictional African country called Wakanda. Mm-hmm. And as part of the, the creation of the film, the, the producers and, and, and the creative uh, staff... Uh, took elements from different uh, real-life African cultures t- to create Wakanda. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite interesting. The, like, one of the tribes within Wakanda, the border tribe, their dress is based on uh, Basotho clothing. Okay. So, like, from, from Lesotho. Uh, there's one, uh, one character that you see, and I, actually, I think a few of them, but one character in particular has these sort of red uh, red locks and kind of red skin that's based on the Ovahimba people from Namibia mm-hmm. and the, the kind of royal guard of the of the country like that protect the king the I think they're called the Dora Milaje something like that they're based on 
uh, units from Benin in the 1600s. I think it was called Dahomey at the time, but where Benin is now. Hmm. And so they've taken all these disparate elements from all over the continent to portray this, this fictional country. And several of the characters speak Isinglosa as the language. And that's like the stand-in in the film for the Wakandan language. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. And I'm kind of curious about this. I, I would love to see some perspectives from African writers and African fans on this usage of all these disparate elements from like all over the continent put together in one location um, to represent a fictional country because there's this great like recurring idea that like a lot of a lot of westerners have that Africa is a country and it's kind of this undifferentiated place that's all the same mm-hmm. and I'm curious to what extent that kind of Afrofuturism that takes all these different elements and just kind of puts them together can reinforce that in the minds of Western viewers. Well, I mean... Okay. That's obviously a bad thing to think because it's so untrue and it, it reduces the, like, the, like it, it, it erases, like, the huge diversity that exists there. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what, like, Africans think about that, about, you know, taking African cultures. Because, you know, it's, it's an American film, so it's Americans that are, that are doing this to Africa. In, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Okay. So that, that, that's interesting. So I was going to ask about like the, the production staff for this, mm-hmm. uh, were they African of African descent or were they all just white people? Oh no, it's, it's a uh, massively, massively, uh, African like designers and stuff. Okay. Um, and like a lot of the actors are, uh, like either American or like, uh, from from families that like recently went to America are like you know half I think uh, there's like 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 Kenyan Americans and stuff in it. Hmm. Um, okay, so I suppose that's one point that is bear, is worth uh, noting. Uh, yeah. The other point is uh, to answer your question somewhat. Sh- wouldn't it depend on the conceits of the film? Like uh, I know nothing about Black Panther at all. So mm-hmm. uh, clean slate here. Um, if this fictional country is meant to represent sort of a a homogenized um, Africa, a future ha- Africa that has become homogenized and become kind of unified or whatever, um, mm. then surely the logical thing would be to present a setting where things are more homogenized. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, the, if that is the explicit goal of the thing, then I don't think there's really a problem with that. If it's not... And it's just people being like, oh, we need things that are African. Uh, let's just pull loads of things in from everywhere and then we'll call it African. That's great. Then that is a problem, I think. Yeah. Well, the the setting is that it's this like country in Africa, which has secretly got all this advanced technology and it's it's hidden it from the world. And it's it's settled by these five different tribes. So it kind of makes sense in that way that it's the, like these different groups all have their own individual uh, cultures that have formed part of Wakandan culture as a whole. Hmm. Um, but, I don't know, the fact that they speak Noza is really strange because it's thousands upon thousands of miles away. And that would be like someone in a film set in China speaking Ukrainian is, is one kind of analogy that I saw. Yeah, that, that you is... Know, that it's, weird, it's yeah. very much an East African uh, setting, or it's, it's shown to be like... Um, 
I, I checked the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki and it's where, where it is. It's on the borders of, uh, damn, I wrote the name down here. Hmm, I forgot to write the name down, but it's oh. it's it would border South Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Uganda, that kind of area, oh, and that's okay. like thousands upon thousands of miles away from South Africa, where Isingos is spoken. Um, so that I and I have seen like some people on online, and uh, one guy from South Africa who I I'm connected to through some some groups say that you know it's they they didn't speak very good Zosa. And it, it does represent an American fantasy of what Africa is like. So I'd, I'd be, I just, I'd, I'd be interested to see more about. Obviously, I don't really have a right to judge this, but I, I would like to see some perspectives from African writers and African fans on on this world building. Yeah, I, I thought this immediately when I saw Black Panther come out. I was kind of like, uh, yeah, a Western view of Africa could be could be presented here. And it could be mm-hmm. really detrimental to Africa, uh, for all the reasons that you you brought up. But um, yeah, it seems it's from what you say, it seems like certain things are really kind of good, um, mm-hmm. uh, and then certain things like the the language, for example, is not so good. It seems a very interesting kind of like melting pot of different ideas about what Africa yeah. is. Um, so I am. And I'm, there's sorry. There's on. a Wakandan script that you you see a few times in the film, which is just a cipher for English. Like the the script is based on. Actually, I I took the name down. Let me find it here. The script is based on uh, an old script. Let me find it. Uh, yeah, it's based. Uh, it looks like it's based on the old script. Uh, Tamazit or Tamazight. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Spell. Um, T A M A Z I G H T. Um, uh, but it's it's just used as a cipher for English, which I guess you know make makes sense. And you know, things t- coming up on the screen, you know, it says it in the script and then turns into English London. Um, but you'd think if Game of Thrones could commission two conlangs, you could get Disney to commission one. You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. As someone who likes Conlang, ciphers are particularly annoying. Um, yeah, I don't like them. It's just it's, it's a little bit lazy. Um, but then again, Bill, most people won't care. You know, most people don't yeah, care about the like, like like most people. I I would imagine most people who just kind of like uh, non nerds who watch Game of Thrones just because it's like zeitgeisty, they probably wouldn't even know that uh, like Dothraki is a fully functioning language has been mm. planned by an actual linguist. I believe it's an actual linguist. Did David Peterson yeah. write Dothraki? I think so. Yeah. Um, so I, most people, I think, won't care. Yeah. So from a studio... It doesn't take away from it as a, like, as a good film. But, you know, from a point of view of world building, I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, from the point of view of representations of Africa, I would like to know what Africans think of it. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Uh, that would be cool. Uh, I'd imagine, surely, there must be some essays floating around the internet on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I need to know more about perspectives on Afrofuturism in general and, and Pan-Africanism in general. Um, but I haven't seen anything specifically to do with Black Panther yet. And I'm also really bad at reading nonfiction, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it might oh, take me a while to do it. <laughs> tell me about it. I'm, I'm really bad at reading nonfiction. Um, any any major flaws of, of the film? Anything where you're kind of like this was not great? Um, 
There was one reference to an internet meme, which I found <laughs> slightly cringy, uh, just because I don't like that meme. Uh, otherwise, no, not really. Okay, cool. So overall, thumbs up would recommend. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, very good film. Cool, cool. I I actually genuinely can't wait to see it. Um, yeah, just the, the I seen ads for it and the aesthetics were just amazing. Um, yeah. and I know nothing. I know literally nothing about Afrofuturism other than I know what that term means. Um, mm-hmm. but every time it like crops up, like artistically and aesthetically, it's just a wonderful thing. Um to me and i really want to go check it out and see what it's like so uh, i suppose artifacts we could expect a full-blown review of this at some stage um if it's as good as everyone's making out if it's not i'm just not going to talk about it. <laughs> um cool uh i too have been consuming a bit of media yeah uh and that is myself and the captain watched the handmaid's tale oh cool now uh okay i suppose uh i thought just to give you my thoughts on it I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. incredibly have good. You, have you listened to the book? No, because I can't get the book here. Um, oh, okay. Like, oh, I, I probably could find an illegal version somewhere, but Amazon or audible.co.uk uh, doesn't have a version of it. I believe Americans can get a version of it. Um, mm-hmm. So I haven't listened to the book. Uh, but I had the captain tell me parts, like, as we were going through it, she told me uh, bits where... Um, it departed from the book and how the book was different and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I could go on about all the nuance of the thing, but just two main points. I think the world building was probably one of the uh, best and most exam- uh, most uh, immersive examples of world building I've experienced in a long time, specifically with regard to kind of like dystopian settings. Because usually I find the world building of dystopian settings to be jarring because it's like it's kind of like earth but not really and it it seems like it just it just breaks my immersion but there's something about the lingo and the system and everything where you're kind of like oh yeah i can totally see how that could happen like i can see how a theocratic state could arise i can see how the 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 uh what's called what's the word i'm looking for um the system of calling handmaids by their masters. I can see how that could arise. Everything seems mm-hmm. like a real logical uh, extension of certain principles. Um, and I thought that was amazing. And then the second point is from a filmic point of view, I don't know what lens they shot the thing on, but they shot the thing on, on a super fast lens. And as such, there was lots of like background blur and there was lots of beautiful shots where like, only like a single eye of a person will be in focus and everything will be blurry in the background, like an extreme blur. Um, so this makes me think that it's a deliberate artistic decision that has some sort of commentary, like kind of like this is ethereal. This is transient. This is not lasting. This is dreamlike. Like there will become a time where Gilead will fall and things will return to normal. Um, it has right. that, It has that sort of like, unreal quality to the actual art style which is just amazing and some of the scenes in it man like uh, oh sorry i should ask have you seen the series <laughs> i have not i've <laughs> read the book <laughs> okay sorry okay i'm just okay i'm gonna bang on site here some of the scenes okay. in the series are like are like uh reminiscent of like dutch master paintings like there's a couple oh, wow. of oh man I, I can't emphasize there's a couple of scenes with um with alfred 
and she's sitting in her room and it's like uh, everything's really dark and the, just there's the light coming in from the window and the positioning and the lighting and the framing is just you could take a screenshot and be like that's a painting right there that is mm. an old classic painting and it's just gorgeous like I, I was oh, i was totally immersed by the world and the way it was depicted um class but the main reason why i bring this up is because i believe in a previous episode you had said that if anyone reads the handmaid's tale and gets to the end you'll understand something about bill there's something in it that you really like uh well not that you'll understand about me but you'll recognize one of my interests right okay right yeah so i got to the end and I asked the captain, I was like, is this end in the TV series the end in the book? And she was like, yeah, give or take. They, uh, spoilers, uh, they, the eyes come uh, to take away of Fred and your man Nick says to her mayday and then she gets put in a van. Um, and she was like, that's pretty much how the book ends. And I was like, okay. And now I'm left thinking, what are your interests? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's another bit after that in the book. Oh, what's the other bit? I don't want to spoil it. Well, I mean... Um, uh, no, no, okay, okay. You don't want to spoil it for me, or you don't want to spoil it for the audience? Both. Ah, crap. Okay, all right. Will you just tell me, because I don't really don't care, I actually want to know what this thing is that it relates to you, and I'll just beep it for the audience. So, that that happens, right? That's the end of the book. And I, I read that, and I was like, oh, that was amazing. That was a, a whole uh, roller coaster ride. Um, and then I like went to the next page and it says historical note and the rest, like the last chapter of the book or like the epilogue is the transcript of a talk from a few hundred years later at an academic conference about the history of Gilead. And it's, they're discussing the handmaid's tale, the novel you've just read as a historical text. Oh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I totally get it. This has this is your in-universe thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, like, you've just read this novel, and it's been this like it's it's amazing. It's an incredible book. And then the last chapter is like this meta thing where it's it's another level of fiction, but it's like treating the story you've just read as a historical document and like the, dealing with it as potentially unreliable narrators and stuff. Now I, I read that and I was like, that that's incredible. It's, it made it like one of the best books I've read in a long time. Um, but I, I, I was reading this thing recently about how it kind of, it makes it even more bleak in a way. Like it reinforces some of the misogyny, which like, I hadn't picked up on that when I read it, but it made sense when I, when I read this, this article. Um, Wait, what, why it reinforces... Yeah, why does the epilogue reinforce misogyny? I don't understand. Well, not not the fact of the epilogue, but the specific content of the epilogue. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, so what's said in it reinforces misogyny. Um, yeah, yeah, in, in ways, yeah. And, and and it kind of makes the whole thing more bleak, in a sense. Um, less bleak in others, because you, you, you know more about what happens afterwards in the setting, in the world building. Um yeah, so it's 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 really it's incredible. Hmm. That okay. I totally get what is Bill like about that. I get that. Uh, that's that is class, and uh, I'm actually really sad that I didn't read the book and I didn't get to experience that. 
Um, because well, I told you. <laughs> no, no, but like I doubt that they're going to do this in the TV series, unless they do it at the very end of all the seasons, and they're like, "Oh, actually, we're going to discuss it a little bit." Yeah. Um. But so I don't think I would have actually experienced that. So I think. Wait. It's, so it's, so season one ends with the same thing as the end of the book, but there's going to be more seasons of it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think your one uh, is Atwood, Margaret Atwood. Yeah, yeah. I think she's involved in the production, so I think they're just expanding. I'm pretty upon, sure she is. Yeah, I think they're, they're expanding upon um, mm-hmm. what, what's happening. I believe the colonies are going to play an important role in the next season, from rumors I hear on the internet, which I believe are only mentioned like uh, offhandedly in the book. They're not a key uh, part of the book. Um, right. So, what are the colonies? You what? What are the colonies? I, I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea. Okay. Like, the colonies are places where uh, uh, people are, criminals are sent to do, like, I think, hard labor. And I get the impression okay. that there's some environmental disaster happening there. So the working conditions are horrific. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know what the actual, like, where the actual colonies are. Um, right. I, spo- I, I read somewhere that the second season was going to address uh, the kind of white supremacy of Gilead a bit more. Because that's a thing that isn't really touched on um, in the books, uh, I don't think. Oh, no. Well, no, obviously, I mean, sorry, it is touch, touched on in the books, the, the racism of it. But it doesn't play a part or in the actual narrative. Mm. Um, like, it's an, ex, it's an explicitly racist state in the books, but it, it, that doesn't come into Offred's story. Okay, because at one stage when we were watching it, I, I turned to the captain and was kind of like, you know, these are terrible, terrible people. But they're not racists, <laughs> because it seems. Like... I, I did hear that, that like, they, yeah, they they made a point of of putting like more uh, black actors and stuff in the in the TV show. Yeah, because yeah, you would see black handmaids, and you're kind of like they're not making yeah. the distinction on color; it's just on on sex, you know. Yeah. Um, which again, that doesn't make it okay at all. Uh, but it's it, it's interesting how people choose their hatred, if you know what I mean. Like you yeah. can you can hate a person for X and then be okay with them for another thing, and you're kind of like none of this hatred makes any sense. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But uh, final point, I suppose, I want to bring up is that um, I, maybe I shouldn't admit this, uh, but I think the the TV show wants you to feel this. Like as you watch the TV show, there are points in it where you really empathize with the clear bad guys, which is which is great as a viewing experience because it really drags you through the emotions. Um, yeah. But there's been, there was times where the commander, I was kind of like, you know, I was like, he's not really that bad a dude. And then you're like, oh, no, wait, no, he is. No, sorry. Like, you get lulled into a false sense. You're kind of like, oh, he's human. I feel for him. He's not a yeah. heart. No, he's a heartless monster. Yeah, he is. <laughs> that's, that's one of the things I, I really enjoyed in the book is that, Obviously, it's not equal. I mean, that's that's not up for debate. But the way the book is written and the way that the the narrative progresses and the story of how Gilead became Gilead, it it's everyone is complicit in some level, and everyone is a victim in some level. Yeah, yeah, it's very complex. There are no clear yeah. good guys and bad guys. It's well, there well, are no, there are clear bad. There are definitely clear bad guys. Yeah, yeah. But they all, but they're all, they're not one dimensional. There's no one dimensional yeah. character. I yeah. think that's absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, it's this TV series is probably the best thing I've watched in a long, long time. Like I was mm-hmm. utterly blown away by it, and yeah, it's just a fantastic work of fiction, and the world building it in it is just 
it's just like it's it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I'm completely blown away. Um, cool. So yeah, I would if anyone has not read the thing or has not watched the series, I would strongly urge you to do both. Like it's just yeah, it's truly truly amazing. Um, so yeah, that's that's all I wanted to say. I just wanted to find out what your thing was. That's all. That's all I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> uh, I believe. I believe is that is that everything for for this week. Uh, that is everything for this week. Um, or this month, rather. Or this, um, this month and this week. Cool. And so, look, uh, thank you, Bill, for, for talking and doing the show. As always, thank, thank you, you to Edgar. all... Uh, thank, thank you, you to, to all, all the listeners. Yeah, thanks to all the listeners for listening. Uh, we will see you next month. Uh, until next time, Edgar out. Edgar out. Edgar out.